This morning, we are privileged to, to join together, and we're going to be back in the book of Ruth. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. This morning, we end the journey that we started four weeks ago when we uh, launched into the book of Ruth. And uh, Ruth is a magnificent book. In Ruth 1, you, you kind of launched into this life, and, and it's a, a difficult life. You find out at the very beginning of Ruth 1 that you learn about Naomi, and you find out she had a husband, Elimelech, and two sons, and they live in Bethlehem, but there's a, there's a famine, and so they leave Bethlehem, and they move to Moab, which wasn't a wise decision, and if they move there, the, hus- the, the sons then marry Moabite wives, and after 10 years, uh, in that time period, Elimelech dies, the husband And then the two sons, Kilion and Malon, die. And Naomi, the wife and mother, is left to herself. She's by herself. She's in a foreign country, and she has her two daughter-in-laws. And so she's forced to leave at that point, to head back home to to Bethlehem. And her two uh, daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, decide to follow with. And Naomi turns them back, doesn't want them to come. They needed to, to stay back, she says. It's better for them. But Orpah chooses to go. Ruth says, no, I'm staying with you. And that beautiful passage in the end of chapter one where we see her, her commitment to Naomi. And we lead into chapter two and at the brink of starvation as Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem without a way to supply food, Ruth decides to go out to the fields to look for favor of a, a landowner so that she can gather food for the family. And as the author says, she just happens to come to Boaz's field And as you see in the book of Ruth, there's no thing as chance, not with God. She doesn't happen to come. God directs that. She goes to the land that's owned by Boaz and and works the land. And in chapter two, you have the first date of Ruth and Boaz at the Barley Garden, right? He shows up and he shows incredible favor to her and her family and things are looking up for them. And that leads into chapter three that we looked at last week. And, And Naomi, the matchmaker in this, sets up a plan, devises a plan for, for Ruth to, to propose to Boaz. A very risky situation we looked at last week at the threshing floor, and Boaz doesn't disappoint as he's called in chapter two a worthy man, and he follows through with that in chapter three and, and acts this way towards her and the family, that he is a redeemer. But at the end of the chapter, if you remember, he says, there is yet one that is closer than I. So the chapter ends with Boaz promising that this will be taken care of, that he will find out who the Redeemer will be. And Ruth and Naomi there are left at the end of chapter three, wondering what's gonna happen next. If you remember from the first week, I I quoted uh, one commentary said about the book of Ruth. He said, this is the most beautiful short story ever written. And it really is. 85 verses, this is a short story, but There's so much packed in here. There's suspense, there's love, there's sacrifice, there's salvation, there's a redeemer. There's so much in the book of Ruth. And so I wanna spend the next 45 minutes looking at Ruth chapter four and finish it off here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, follow with me as I read Ruth chapter four, starting at verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. 
So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord would give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and he became, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Ninimadab. Ninimadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer this morning? God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to read together, to study together your word. We thank you for this journey these last four weeks through the book of Ruth and what we've learned, what we've grasped and understood, what we've been convicted and challenged on. And God, this morning, as we look at this final chapter, I pray that you would bring understanding to our hearts and our minds. I pray as, as those seated here, God, of those in the midst of darkness and and struggling those in the midst of troubled times, I pray that the book of Ruth would bring comfort to them, that you do not leave your people, that you are faithful. May we see that this morning as we look at this idea of our faithful God in supplying a redeemer for this family. May we again rejoice and worship you by the reading and the studying and the preaching of your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we venture to end this book and there's three things that I want you to see in this chapter. First is the supposed redeemer, next is the real redeemer, and third is the future redeemer. 
supposed redeemer, the real redeemer, and the future redeemer. And so here is the supposed redeemer. Verse one, Boaz had gone up to the gate as he's promised in chapter three and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. You know, the, the chapter four begins at the city gate. If you remember from last week in chapter three, Boaz wastes no time in finding the answer for Naomi and Ruth. When we leave chapter three, Ruth goes home with the barley and Boaz makes his way to the city gate. Well, why the city gate? Well, this is the courtroom for their culture. This is where business happens. This is where it takes place and this is where it's completed. And Boaz is on a mission. As it says in verse two, he gathers 10 elders from the city because he has important business to attend to. And we're introduced for the first time to the supposed redeemer. If you remember in chapter three, Ruth proposes a Boaz and he responds that there's another redeemer closer than he is, meaning there's another guy that's closer to Naomi's line than he is. If you remember from last week and the weeks prior, a redeemer is very important for the family. A redeemer is a kinsman who's able to purchase property and marry a widow so the family line would continue. And Naomi is seeking a kinsman redeemer for Ruth so that he could then buy back the use of the land and marry Ruth and have a child to prolong the name of Elimelech. And the kinsman redeemer was God's idea. He is the one that set it up when disaster happened. If you were to look at Leviticus 25, I'm gonna read it. It will explain this, Leviticus 25, verse 24. I want you to write this down if you can because this is good studying during the week. It says this, in all the country you possess, you shall allow redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he has sold it back and pay the, back the balance to the man whom he sold it and then return to his property. God had provided redemption of family members because of death and because of other uh, serious issues. And for them in this time, land was everything. It was, it was vital for them to have land to continue on with their family line. If the land was lost because of something, whether it was famine or death, it, this was a way for a kinsman to come in, a relative to come in and redeem the land, thus keeping that land in the family. If you fast forward just a couple books from Leviticus to Deuteronomy chapter 25, you can see how this law of the land lines up with marriage and how this ties in. God would provide a way for a widow to be provided for and for their heir to have what is needed. I mean, this is the heart of God here in Deuteronomy 25 and what he desired for families when it came in regards to land and marriage. So read or listen as I read here in Deuteronomy 25, verse five and following. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so what you have here is the understanding that God will provide a way. He has provided a way for the name of the deceased to continue. He's instituting this kinsman redeemer to keep the name going. But in this passage in Deuteronomy 25 and verse seven, there's an out clause. Okay, let me read this to you because this is pertinent for us this morning. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. 
And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal of his foot and spit in his face. All right, now things are getting interesting, right? And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who his sandal has pulled off. So that's not a good thing, okay, just so you know. Can you imagine the placard outside his house? All this ties in back to Ruth chapter four. The closer kinsman, the redeemer that Boaz mentions is here. And he's, he's on the scene now. And it says, behold, the redeemer whom Boaz has spoken came by. He just happens to come by. Now we know, right, going four weeks through the book of Ruth, nothing happens by chance. God here again orchestrates this and the guy's walking by right when he needs to and Boaz is like, hey friend, come Come take a seat. You see the fingerprints of God throughout this. Now, I want you to know, Boaz knows this guy. He knows him, okay? He probably knows his name, knows about him. But there's something interesting in the way the author communicates that to us. He calls him, in our text, the Redeemer. In Hebrew, that means poloni almane. And you say, so what, right? Good question, so what? Do you know what the translation is for Peloni Almani? Mr. So-and-so. Real deep. You know, the author's telling us here something. He's saying, I'm not gonna even mention his name. That's what he's communicating. I'm gonna call him Mr. So-and-so. Or as we would say, what's his name? Right, do you say that? Is there anyone here like me that struggles to remember names of people? You know what the proper thing to do in churches when you see a guy you're like hey brother <laughs> that's your out right you know like I don't know your name but but he's not doing that because he forgot the author didn't forget he's being very direct it's like calling him Bubba right is anyone named Bubba here I'm not trying to offend but we sometimes do that it's not a term of endearment in this way to me it's, it's fascinating because the author goes to great lengths to make sure we do not know the name of this supposed redeemer. And why? Why is he wanting us to quickly forget about this guy? Well, it's significant to the book of Ruth. Look at verse three. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may no, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And his response is, I will redeem it. So Boaz, the honorable man, the man that we're all cheering for in this book, says to, in front of to 10 elders and other witnesses, this is what needs to happen. Naomi's back. She does not have access to, to work the land. She actually needs it to be bought back through her fam, husband's family. And only a kinsman redeemer can do this. And, and I want to be clear, she actually isn't selling the land. She's selling the use of the land, which was very common in their days. And so land was supposed to be staying in the family, but the use could be sold out to the kinsman redeemer. And so it would be passed from one male to another. But here's Naomi. She's not a male. She can't work the land. She has no son to have the land worked. She needs the kinsman redeemer. She needs someone to work the land and take care of her then. So she's selling the use of the land to the kinsman redeemer so that she could live. And so Boaz informs Mr. So-and-so 
about his duty to buy back the use of the land. It's his duty. Remember in Deuteronomy 25, it falls to him. He is the closest redeemer. She has land, she needs to sell it to have money to live on. And Mr. So-and-so, he's a businessman, he's a smart guy. He's looking at this as a real estate deal and says, sounds good to me. I'll get some land on this. She'll live there, she'll die. I'll get it. It's all working out great for him. I mean, for him, he can buy this land and it's not gonna cost him very much. He can support an old lady in the corner in a shack. That's fine, she can live there and he'll work the land and then it folds right into his portfolio. He has more land. This is a benefit. I'm sure he's thinking, I wanna be a good steward of my money and this is financially good for me. And so he responds, yeah, I'll redeem it, Boaz. I'll buy it. And if you're watching this, as you might in a movie format, your heart begins to sink, right? I mean, you're seeing this and you're thinking, seriously? Who's this joker? You know, and the camera pans and, and follows the crowd there that's there and they're, they're catching the faces and they're all just thinking, really? This guy, where did he come from? You know, I can, I can imagine in my imagination running that when chapter three ends and Naomi and her her way of planning and concocting plans to make sure. I'm sure she's saying to Ruth, hey, they're gonna go to the gate, so let's go there. I can see them sneaking from the distance and standing 50 yards or so from the gate to watch the proceeding because this is impacting them. They wanna know what's gonna happen. So they're back 50 yards or so. You know, and Naomi's just chattering away because she's really nervous. She doesn't trust really at this point probably. And Naomi's hushing her, saying, just be quiet. They're talking. I want to find out what's going on. And they hear the whole thing. This is important business. I mean, Ruth is going to find out who she's going to marry. How, ladies, here, how, how would you like this for marriage, right? You, 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 you want to be with a guy, but you got to wait for these elders in the city gate to figure that out. Maybe we should move that way in the church here, right? All marriages from now on to be proved by the elders. All right, there's no laughs there, okay? I was just, just a joke, by the way. It wouldn't be comfortable, right? You would be really uncomfortable to have this, your future laid out, but this was the pattern. And she sees this now, and so I'm, I'm sure she's thinking, why is he talking about land? Why is that the discussion? Is land more important than me, Ruth may think? Really, is that all it is now, land? And, and, and who is this guy? You know, and the question's asked, and she's struggling to find out. She sees from a distance, and all of a sudden, she hears the response, Yes, I will redeem it. And can you imagine now the response of them at this point? She, she's probably upset. Now, I don't want this joker. I want Boaz. He's a worthy man. I don't know who this guy is. You know, as I'm reading it personally, I want to shout at Boaz and say, seriously, brother, what are you doing? You're just, you're mailing it in. You're going to give Ruth to this guy? And think about it. This would be a horrible ending to the book. You're coming this long and all of a sudden here comes the closer redeemer and off they go into the sunset. Whoa, horrible, horrible ending. So, you know, all these people and their effect and I, and I can't help but think also of Naomi. You know, if Naomi's there 50 yards away and at one point she says, call me bitter because she's angry. At this point she says, call me angry because this is not going the way I want it to go. She's, she's frustrated. She can't believe this is gonna happen. He's ruining the plan, this Mr. So-and-so. Well, Boaz is smart and he's worthy and he's not done yet, unfolding all that's included in this. In verse five, Boaz says, 
The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in its inheritance. So Boaz springs a surprise in this deal. One more thing, Mr. So-and-so. If you're so quick to get this land, hold on, there's one more thing that comes with it. It's Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow. And her husband is the one that has the land. It's her, his family. And he says literally to her, you must marry her in order to raise up a child for the dead man. A child who will then inherit the field when he grows up. He is saying to this man in this, in this statement, you will use your money to buy back that field. You will use your money to marry her. You will use all your money to raise a family. God will probably throw in a few girls because they're really expensive for a family. Trust me. And you will use all of these resources. And guess what? When that son is old enough, he will get the land. Not you. And the Boaz, I mean the Boaz, the Redeemer gets all this stuff. In verse six, he says this. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so Mr. So-and-so is backing up so quickly, he's almost tripping on his feet to get out of this deal as quickly as possible. He does not want anything to do with this. A moment ago, it was a can't-miss real estate deal. I mean, even taking care of an old lady in the corner is just fine. He can deal with that, so he gets the land. But now he's gonna get a wife, and he has to support this wife and have a child with this wife. Well, that steps over the line for him. This was a nightmare deal for him. He, he wants out of this as quickly as possible. And he says it would impair my own inheritance. And the point of redemption of Ruth was so that there would be a son and this would, redeemer would, would then lose the field and it would be no benefit for him. So in other words, Mr. So-and-so was only interested in ministry to the poor if only there was a payoff for him at the end. Costly ministry without personal payoff? Absolutely not. He is running from that. And this was costly for the Redeemer. This was going to be costly for Boaz. It was life-changing. If we were to put this on contemporary terms, a kinsman Redeemer would have to attend every Little League, little league game. A cost for the, the Redeemer would pay for piano lessons. He would pay for braces. He would pay for college. He would pay for the first car. He would pay for prom. He would pay for everything. Right, there is a cost for this. Not to mention he's going to have to build an addition to his house for the mother-in-law. Okay? So there's a cost for the Redeemer. And this was way too much for Mr. So-and-so. He says no. And to me, he comes across like a calculating businessman whose only concern is the bottom line. And this isn't good. I mean, the thought for him of giving up his rights for someone else, no, it's not even close to being on his radar screen. Instead, he exercises his right of refusal. And he, he should count his blessings because he didn't get spit on, as Deuteronomy 25 said. Can you see Ruth now in the distance, though, in the midst of this? I mean, she's in the background doing a fist pump, like, sweet. I don't want this guy anyways. I want Boaz. And what we learn from this guy, Mr. So-and-so, is that he doesn't care about his legacy. He only cares about his comfort and his stuff. Boaz puts people over stuff. 
He is willing to risk his entire wealth to serve someone else. Mr. So-and-so, he cares only for himself. And what's his reward for his refusal? He's forgotten. Actually, he's worse than that. We don't even know his name. We never will know his name. The author is telling us in this story, don't concern yourself with this guy. He is not worth your energy. He's not worthy to be named. And let me tell you something. In Ruth chapter four, it's all about names. I mean, you heard it when I read the chapter. If you read it this week, it's all about names in this chapter. From the concern to preserve the name of Elimelech and Malon and their inheritance to the blessing of the name of Boaz in verse 11 to all of the names that are listed at the end of this book. The author is saying to us, a name is very important. And all the Mr. Mr. So-and-so doesn't realize this, a lasting name was at stake here. The man that would redeem Ruth would not only get a woman of character, a woman of impressive work ethic, a buff woman who can carry 80 pounds of barley with no problem, he would be getting a place in God's plan. And the line of, of Boaz now would stretch and include Obed and Jesse and King David all the way down to King Jesus. And so this Mr. So-and-so, He's trying to protect his own comfort. And by protecting his own comfort, his own future, he forever is nameless. He's nameless. He walks away from the story of God easily forgotten. And he reminds me actually of Orpah and that he chooses the conventional wisdom. Everyone that, that sits outside of it and has no understanding of spiritually what's gonna happen or what's happening with Boaz, they're saying, well, he made the right decision conventional wisdom. But he chooses something that's outside, outside of what God has desired. And, and he's just like Orpah, who chooses the comfort of life. I mean, at least she's named. This guy, he's not named at all. And when the Bible doesn't give you a name, it implies judgment. And I realize, I'm, as I'm writing it and working through it, I'm coming harsh on this guy. I believe it's warranted through the scriptures because there's a reason. Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. And this isn't talking about like the right name, you know, choose the name Jeff. It's a good name, by the way. It's 46th most popular name in America, just so you know. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about the name, like it's a specific name. What, what this verse is saying in Proverbs 22 is saying, what does that name mean? What comes to your mind when you hear their name? What comes to your mind when you hear of someone else's name? You know, a good name in our world speaks of integrity. It speaks of a good reputation. That's what a good name is. So what do people think when they hear of your name? What do they think of? Or even the story of Ruth, do people even spend their words to even name you? Are you nameless? Are you Bubba, Mr. So-and-so? What's his name? 
book of Proverbs says that a good name is worth more than riches. You know, folks, people will remember you. We remember this guy. We just don't know his name. The question is, what will they remember about you? What will they remember about you? Will you be nameless like this guy or will you be like Boaz and Ruth? Choosing to serve others instead of yourself. You know, they're loud. Boaz, he is a smart guy. He is a businessman, but he is not worried about his finances or his financial future or his portfolio or his investments. He's not worried about that. He's not worried about his dreams. He chooses people over stuff. And there is no future for those that are set on promoting their own well-being at the cost of other people. You know, Mr. So-and-so was given an opportunity to redeem a family from a life of ruin. He understands the family. He understands his obligation. He understands the law. But he only thinks of himself. And we all have this temptation in life to size up a situation and figure out what's best for me. And we, then we, we hide behind the spiritual answers of safety or stewardship. All along the while, we watch those right in front of us waste away. And what happens is ultimately, we seek first the kingdom of self instead of, Jesus said, seeking first the kingdom of God. We all have this choice. So I ask, what is your name in the community? If I were to go around and start talking to your friends and saying, what do you think of so-and-so? What would they say? What about our church? And I was thinking about this week. So I'm going through this. What, what, is, what do people think when they hear about Edgewood Bible Church? What do we want them to think about? Will our church be remembered as a good example of Christ-likeness? You know, Boaz, he models for us in this, this book, he models for us faithfulness to God's word. He models for us compassion for others and generosity to the needy. Is that what we're known for as a church family? Is that what you're known for in your life? You know, I'm praying that that would be the end, not only for myself, but for our church and for you individually. God is calling us to be, to be about things that are bigger than ourselves to give more than just for ourselves, to give to others. This is what Boaz does. He is the example for us. So God is calling you to do this individually and he's calling for us to do it corporately, to serve others for the glory of God. I pray that we're faithful to it. So we've seen the supposed redeemer second and we'll look at the, the real redeemer. Mr. So-and-so forgoes his responsibility and Boaz, he's thrilled to have the opportunity to serve the family. Verse seven, it was the custom in former times in Israel to concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And this is the moment. 
This is what we've been waiting for for four chapters, for four weeks, as we've been walking through this story. This is what we're waiting for, to see this finally happen, to see all the loose ends tie up, right? I mean, this makes a good story. These two women at one point were in need of food and God provided. They're in need for, for shelter and redeemer and now God's provided. And so Mr. So-and-so leaves the scene and Boaz steps up in a huge way. It's official. The music's playing. They're gonna be married, right? This is where we rejoice over what God is doing. And he exchanges this by the sandal, you know, confirming this again, that this is done. He's pronouncing that Ruth will be his wife. And then there's a blessing that's given to them from the, the elders and the people surrounding in verse 11. Then all the people were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily to Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The crowd seems to be have grown at this point around the gate during the discussion. They're, they're interested in what's happening here. And so along with the elders, they pronounce this blessing to Boaz and their wish that they have children, that Ruth, the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess would have a place among the matriarchs of Israel. This is huge. This is significant. I'm sure this is happening right in front of Mr. So-and-so. In fact, he was right in center of the discussion. Now he's been pushed back to the outskirts and he's trying to peer over to see what happens and now regretting what he's done. Because the, the witnesses around accept Ruth into their covenant community and wish that she too might be a mother of an Israelite. You know, if Rachel and Leah had built up the house of Israel and that the house was, metaphorically speaking, in ruins during the period of Judges, the witnesses then pray that Ruth would build up or even restore the house. This is an incredible blessing and in prayer for a foreigner. And what they're saying here is, Ruth, you have become a true daughter of Abraham. So verse 13, very important verse of this book, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore him a son. For 10 years of marriage to Malon, Ruth was barren, unable to have kids. We seem to overlook that in the story. You can imagine the suffering that Ruth experienced, not only in her country of Moab for 10 years, wanting to have a kid, so desperately wanting, and not having one. And the text stops short of saying that God closed the womb of Ruth, but it's implied here. God had sovereignly withheld conception for Ruth for 10 years of marriage. And we, as a reader, ask the question naturally, why? Why did God do this? Well, the answer doesn't come clearly in this book, but God's intended purpose we see is that he desired a child to come through the line of Boaz. God withheld a blessing from Ruth to give her a much greater blessing later through Boaz. And I was struck by the thought this week that, that God is truly the only one who can multitask. Raise your hand if you think you're good at multitasking. Come on, be honest. There's a few people, right? You think you can handle a few tasks, right? And I think there are some that most definitely can have a few things in their plate. But when we compare multitasking in the human realm to God, we have no clue what multitasking is. 
The book of Ruth shows us that God is incredible at multitasking. And he sovereignly works in the lives of people. And get this, he does it at the same time. All at the same time. See, that's really multitasking. If you can work on two projects at the exact same time, they're totally different, then I'll be impressed. But God can. And, and we must never limit God and his purposes for our lives as if he was only working on one person's life at one time or one place. God is not restricted by time or place or people. God's not limited like us. There are many times in our lives, maybe you're here this morning and you're in the midst of it where you begin to wonder what God is doing in your life. And, and we can fall prey to the thought that it's all about me. And we begin to function like the world revolves around me. We begin to, to tell ourselves in the midst of a struggle that the universe does in fact revolve around me. We don't want to say that right out loud, but we think that because we're so centered on what's happening to me. And, and I want to tell you, God is ultimately aware and very concerned for your life and for all the providential purposes that he has for your life, which includes you. But this life does not center around you. It does not center around me. God is always working. He's not only working in your life, he's working in the lives of the people seated right here, right next to you in your, in your row. God is working in their life too. And he's working in the lives of millions more. And so to understand that our life and the circle of our life bleeds over into other people's life. And that God chooses to do something in our life that may affect us a little, but may affect someone else a whole lot that you may have no clue about. God truly knows how to multitask. His ability to work in people's life far exceeds our understanding of who he is. And right now, God is using you for his honor and glory and for not only your life, but for others that you're surrounded with. And the cool thing about it is most of it happens and we have no idea. We have no idea what God is doing and how he's doing it. God truly is the only one that can multitask. When you read the book of Ruth, you realize that God is working in the life of Ruth way back when she lived in Moab. And to think about that, you ever trace that back in your life where you're at a situation and you're in awe of what happens and then trace back the steps of how you got there. An amazing decision here and there, things that happen in your life, and now here you are. At some point in life, God directed things so that she would meet Malon. Is that by chance, by happen, they bump into each other in their life? God directed all this. He was working in the life of Boaz, too. He sovereignly orchestrated for their union, and he uses the life of Naomi for his purposes also in all this. But think about this. If Naomi hadn't lost everything, we would have never known about her and she would have never come to appreciate Ruth's true worth. She would never really grown the way she did of an understanding of who God is and how he takes care of his children. God used this tragic situation in Naomi's life for her good and for his glory. He meant it. It was on purpose. 
And it's amazing to see what God does through this, the way he provides for Naomi. Look at verse 14. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and, because, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Amazing things here. You know, Naomi had sons. She understood and appreciated having sons. But now she has a woman in her life, Ruth. And they say that this one woman is better than seven sons. I mean, the, the context of the Old Testament, this is incredible praise for Ruth. Naomi, who, who has been put through the furnace of life, comes through the other side better because of it. God grew her and gave her a place in his plan for all the nations. And the women here come alongside Naomi and praise Ruth. And they praise God for his work in her life. The grandson on Naomi's lap was a clear sign that the emptiness that she felt way back in chapter one has now been replaced with fullness through God's grace. I mean, grandmas that are here, isn't this true, grandmas? When you hold your grandson or granddaughter, the joy that you feel, that first one, right? That exudes out of you. This is, I mean, picture that, remember what it was for you, and now put yourself in Naomi. The joy that's flowing through her at this point. I mean, just a few months earlier, she felt completely empty. Like life has no purpose empty. And here she is holding, holding, as the author says, her redeemer. It's her grandson, actually. Now, now Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, but it was through Obed and through the line that God had brought that he would be the redeemer the nourisher of life, he says. Her husband's line, his name would be remembered because of this little boy. So we've seen the supposed redeemer, the real redeemer, and the future redeemer. You know, at this point, if you're reading this book, or let's say you're watching it as a movie, okay? You're in the theater, and you're watching this on the big screen, and, and you see this final scene, okay? The, the music's playing, and Naomi's sitting there in the chair, rocking, holding Obed, her grandson, and just thrilled at this point of what God has done, okay? And the scene is starting to fade, and you see it, and it goes, and it just fades to black, you know? And you're, you're just impressed with this story and what's happened. And you're with someone, you look at each other, you nod and realize we should get, up, get our stuff, and let's, let's head out the door quickly because you know how at the end of a movie, everyone wants to leave at the same time and then just sits there in a stalemate in the parking lot, right? Am I the only one that goes to a movie? I guess so, okay. Um, well, that's what happens, okay? <clears throat> you should go to a movie once in a while. And, and so you're doing this, and you think, I, I want to beat the traffic. And you're just outside of the theater, almost outside, and then you hear the song get louder, and all of a sudden comes on, on the screen that the movie's not done. You know, have you, have you ever been there where, like, you think it's done, you're walking out, and all of a sudden, oh, wait, there's extra scenes or whatever it is. That is verse 18. That is what happened in this story. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aninadab, Aninadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Solomon, Solomon fathered Boaz, 
Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And I can almost see it in the movie setting of, of the scene after scene, father to father, son going on the line, and you're watching it in front of it, and all of a sudden you realize Obed's connected to David. Ruth is the great-grandmother of the future king, David. I didn't see that coming. This is shocking, actually. You know, all, all throughout the story, you, you know Ruth is a Moabite, really to have nothing to do with Israel, Israelites. And so this, this happens, and, and yet she's going to be the, the great-grandmother of David. God used a Moabite woman with an Israelite man, and they would produce the line of the greatest king that they would know. I mean, no one would thought this would happen. And just so the author gets his point across, he ends the genealogy at 10 generations. And if you read in the Old Testament, the law said that no Moabite may enter in the assembly to the 10th generation. God's pretty good at math, just so you know. He's got it all planned out. It's perfect, by the way. He can multitask. He can do it all. It's incredible to see what God has done. And the story ends and I have to tell you, this week, just remembering again, I've enjoyed this book. It's been a joy for me to study and to read. I hope it has been for you to hear and to study. But before we end, I need to ask, maybe you've asked this, maybe not, but why do we have the book of Ruth? Why is it in the Bible? Is it just another love story? You know, it's, much of what we've read in the book of Ruth is pretty mundane stuff, okay, if we're honest. It's about harvesting, land inheritance, care for widows, dating, marriage. There are no miracles that happen in this book. There were no appearances of angels. There were no prophets thundering now against the sins of the people. There are no calls for repentance. There's nothing traumatic or, or very dramatic in this book. It's very mundane, actually. Yeah, Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, people that you've never heard of before and that you'll hear very little of from here. I mean, Boaz, as a, as a worthy man as he was, really in the town of Bethlehem, he was a big fish in a small pond. It was, he's, not, he's not so much like it's a, that nation's so huge that everyone should know. No, not really, actually. And so why is this book included in the scriptures? We need to ask these questions as we study you know, as you read the book and as you come to Genesis 3, you realize that we are lost in Genesis 3, the fall, and that we're plunged into the situation. We have no hope. And then from there, God writing and showing us through the lives of people that there is a redeemer coming. You know, I'll put it one thought, okay? I shared this last week in Sunday school, but the whole point of the Bible, the whole story of the Bible is that you are a sinner. Okay, so log that away. Remember that. The point of the Bible is you are a sinner, but there is a rescuer. There is a redeemer. And we, we see that throughout the story. And this book points it out to us even more clearly that there is a redeemer. It talks about this kinsman redeemer. There's three things I want you to see as I end here this morning about this redeemer. First, the kinsman redeemer, he must have the right to redeem. We see this clearly in the life of Boaz. He must have the right to redeem Ruth. 
and Boaz made sure he had the right. He went to great lengths to prove that he had the right. It must be the kinsman that's the closest in line to the relative. And so Mr. So-and-so had the right, and he gave it up. Boaz now has the right. He has the right to redeem. Second, he must have the resources to redeem. The, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, must have the resources to pay the redemption price. He had to have what was needed to get the land, to use the land, to have the funds, to marry a wife, to raise kids. He needed to have the resources. So he had to have the right and the resources. The third thing is he must have the resolve to redeem. Mr. So-and-so had the first two things. He had the right, he had the resources as, as it seems, but when the rubber met the road for his life, he did not have the resolve. Ultimately, it wasn't his portfolio for him to marry Ruth, and so he didn't want it. But Boaz, he's a different guy. He had all three. He had the right, he had the resources, and he most definitely had the resolve. So what does this have to do with us? I mean, how do we apply the book of Ruth to our lives? Well, it all comes back to Jesus. Jesus Christ came into this world as the only one, the only one who had the right, the resources, and the resolve to redeem his people. Christ had the right to redeem us because he is the only one who is without sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, and Christ had the resources to redeem us because he comes as God. He has all the resources. He has all of the authority. And because he's redeemed you, guess what? He owns you. 1 Corinthians 6, talking about our purity, says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You're not your own. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. You belong to God. He bought you from the slave market of sin at a high price. He bought you. He used all of his resources to purchase you back. You're his. No one could do this, only Christ. And Christ had the resolve to redeem us. He came to earth. He left perfect fellowship in heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He didn't have to come, but he comes. And he had the resolve. He takes up a wooden cross, not because he had to, not because he was obligated to, but because he desires in obedience to the Father more than his own desires for life. And he takes it up. And not just a wooden cross, he takes up your sin. He takes up my sin and the payment, the inheritance due our sin. The eternity and the damnation separated from a wrathful God towards sin. He takes up that inheritance that is due us, all of us in this room. All of us, we deserve this. And he brings it upon himself and he endures the wrath of God on our behalf. He had the resolve to redeem us. Amen? This story beautifully illustrates for us that he brings us from death to life. He brings us from bitterness to happiness. He brings us from emptiness to fullness. He brings us from despair to hope. But maybe, just maybe, you're here this morning and you're struggling. Maybe God has allowed much calamity in your life. 
For your life, it's not all puppy toes and rainbows. You begin to understand that there are difficulties that will never be resolved this side of heaven. And you struggle with that. There are days where you continue to ask why. The book of Ruth has answers for that too. And I was reminded last night as I was finishing my sermon, I was reminded of my mom's work in the home. My mom was very creative. I, I lived in a house full of all sorts of different creations that she made. She worked with needlepoint and all sorts of different crafts. And so I grew up around that, surrounded by it. In fact, I learned how to sew. I learned how to use a sewing machine when I was Madeline's age, uh, although I don't know how to use one now. I did at one point. I learned how to, to, to do cross-stitch even. But my mom would continue to do this and fill our home with all sorts of things that she had created. And I would naturally, when she'd finish a, a cross-stitch, uh, whatever it was, she would hang it on the wall. My first reaction was to pull it down and look at the back. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at the back of a cross-stitch? What's there? It's a mess. You ever notice that? I was, was fascinated by this. It's a mess in the backside. You know, these colored threads going every which way. They're indistinguishable. You can't really tell what it is. And it's just kind of, I would want to stare at it to try to figure it out. I want to find out what this is. There's this thread going this way. And, the, and this one doesn't make sense. And that one, that one seems too short. And why is this one here and all the way over there? It doesn't seem to make any connection. And you just look at the back of this, this cross stitch and it's just a mess. I don't know how to, a better word, I guess. You don't take the back of it and hang it on your wall, okay? Just so you know. Because people would walk by and be like, well, that's weird. That's a mess. You flip it around. And as I thought about this the last four weeks, you know, cross-stitching, that's our life. It is. And you know what we look at? We constantly look at the lower. We see the backside. We see the mess. And we're trying to distinguish why this goes there. Why is that a black color? Man, I don't like black. It's like darkness. Why is it so short? I thought this would be longer. It makes more sense if it goes here, there, and here. You know, we're trying to distinguish what it looks like. We're trying to understand what the picture is on the other side. And we're so, we're frustrated by that. We want to see it. We want to see the other side. But that's not what God has for us. All we see is the lower. I know you want to see the other side. I do too. But what God has for us is to obey while we only see the lower side and to be faithful to him in the midst of the mess. And the promise that he has, and through the book of Ruth, we see it, that we need to trust him because our life is leading to joy. He's plotting for joy. He's planning good things for our life, and we can't see it. And we need to remember, the book of Ruth tells us this, we need to remember that the best is yet to come. We may not see it. There may be tears in our life that only Jesus Christ will wipe away when we see him face to face. But the best is yet to come. I was reminded again, I read this poem years ago when I was in college by Corey Tenboom. She writes a powerful poem that I believe sums up well the book of Ruth, and I want to end with this. She writes, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves steadily. 
Oftentimes he weaves sorrow and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper and I see the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for the last four weeks. The chance to immerse ourselves in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. I thank you for your faithfulness to them in their lives. I thank you, God, for the faithfulness in our life. And I know, God, there are some seated here in the midst of darkness that so desperately want to see the upper side. But it's not for us. I pray, God, that you would continue to encourage them in the midst of the hardship and the difficulties in life. I pray, God, that they will not dismiss you, but they would stay close to you and stay faithful to you. God, you have sovereignly planned things for our lives, things that do not make any look of sense for us as finite humans. And yet you do it because you love us. Because you know what's best for us. Father, help us in the day-to-day, in the moment-by-moment, to be obedient to you. Help us not lose sight, as we've studied in the book of Ruth, who you are and what you do in our lives. That you're plotting for our joy, that you're planning that. Even though it's hard to see, help us to be faithful, obedient to you. Help us, God, as we leave this place today, later today, help us to be faithful in the ministry you've given us. Help us if if we're functioning healthy in life and, and not in the midst of darkness, help us to seek others that are. Help us to give them the hope that we see in the book of Ruth and in the gospel. I pray, God, that you would work through us and our church this week through VBS. Father, may we be a, a light shining forth the gospel this week. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.